0: I go back to this phrase all the time and people even make fun of me for it because I say it so much. How dare you ask somebody for something before asking for their heart? Welcome to this episode of Every Knee
1: Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic evangelization podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gomer Gormley, joined as I am every week with my co-host, David, the true, the good, and the oh-so-beautiful, Van Vickle. I, I hate these <laughs> titles. I hate them so much. No, you don't. No, well, no I you kinda.
0: don't. <laughs> every week, my friend. Every week. How you doing, Dave? Good, good. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I, I, love, I love the fact that we are getting together like every week to talk like seriously about evangelization yeah, because it makes me feel like, you know, that I mean, this is like getting down to the heart of what Jesus was trying to do. You know, it just makes me so happy that like, we have an hour dedicated to just like the brass tacks of, of transmitting the gospel to people, you know?
1: Yeah. And my favorite part is I steal everything you say. Yeah. Well, and I a... just go back to my church and I'm like, do, 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 I'm original and brilliant. <laughs> oh, I definitely take, I, take I, I definitely take some of your pithy quotes yeah. for myself. See, that's all I'm good for. That's it's all I'm good for. You're like, oh, I have, I have all these people praying for the evangelization of the lost, And I'm like. I coin phrases
0: that sound like a fortune cookie. Oh, I, you know, this weekend I'm speaking at a conference with Peter yeah. Kreef. Oh, my God. That's awesome. I'm going to, I am going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to steal every word that he says. I cannot, and I'm just going to say it right to his face. Like, I plan to write down everything you say this weekend and use it as my own. <laughs> he says things so well. Yeah, he does. So let's, uh, let's dive into some
1: follow up. We have an interesting letter uh, from a listener asking about the priest crisis
0: yeah actually so a lady approached me uh, or, or emailed me and said look you know I'm, I'm actively trying to evangelize both my husband and my sister okay and uh, have been working on this for a long time the one hiccup they seem to have both of them uh, is probably something that we're all going to find in common here i'm sure thousands of our listeners are going to say yep i know exactly what they're talking about uh and that is this how can the church be what it claims to be with this, in light of this whole priest crisis that we're going on, you know, that's going on in the church? And this is a this is an awful situation, right? I mean, the first thing I would say is, make sure you're taking this seriously. This isn't something to gloss over. This is a very valid concern of someone uh, who is looking for credibility in, in the church's claims. Why are the people who are representatives of that church not not making her credible, you know, and so this is a, this is a really valid thing to think about. Uh, people, uh, you know, are, are having a hard time with this all over. So I would say the first thing is make sure you take this seriously. This isn't something to just gloss over. Uh, the second thing I would say is this: make sure you're playing the long game with this. Okay, this is not something you're going to get over in one conversation. So uh, it could be easy to just turn to statistics or things like that and say, "Well, it's not as bad as you think it is," and the media makes it sound better, worse than it is. And this is not that time, right? What you want to do is communicate the holiness of the church, and eventually communicate how this specifically happened. And what I'm, what I mean by that is this: I, I think you need to really point that the example of Catholic living is not necessarily anyone who calls himself a Catholic or even who calls himself a Catholic priest, but the people who truly answered the call of the Catholic life are the saints. So we want to make sure that we that people see that like the church produces these incredible individuals who have surrendered their life to God and that's what that's what the church can do in someone's life so there is that. And the, and the second thing is that, you know, the old phrase that I'm sure you've heard a million times, that the church is not like a museum of saints, it's a hospital for sinners. Uh, there are lots of sinners in the church, and of course, we should never, ever, ever have to defend someone who's the representative of the church, but we are having to defend them. So I would I would play the long game on this one. I would really, um, I would know the issue inside and out, but I would not jump into the statistics at the beginning. Uh, I would really try and start to put the, the pressure more on them. Like, well, if you believe everything else about the church, but this one thing, this one issue you have, you know, how can you stay outside of it? How can you not give yourself, give your life to this? How can you not believe fully in Jesus and what He can do in your life if you believe everything else but this one thing? These are not people who should be representing the church, uh, as opposed to you know the saints who sh- who are a perfect representation of what it means to be a Catholic. Delmar, what are your thoughts so at my parish
1: we have done multiple town hall events directly speaking to the sexual abuse crisis it used to be called in 2002 it was the spotlight scandal it used to be called the priest sex abuse crisis and many priests reflecting on the charter for the protection of young people uh which is a famous document that the usccd produced that then led to all these like virtus trainings and all these different uh models of safe environment um Awareness and whatnot. Uh, a lot of the priests noted how the bishops seemed to exempt themselves, and uh, I was talking with a lawyer, one uh, church lawyer, and he said, "Yeah, well, you had to throw someone under the bus. It's always going to be the priest." And oh wow, that was yeah, it was. It, so there is this. Um, a lot of priests felt like there was this adversarial relationship set up between bishop and priest with that document, and now we've discovered, you know, fifteen years later, that not only are the bishops involved in actually committing the crimes? But they also, in the Pennsylvania grand jury report, for all of its wild distortions and and kind of weirdness that happened around it, um, showed us the kind of callous disregard that bishops had for the victims and the cover up that ensued. And so, you know, there's this line in in the politics: it's not just the crime; it's the cover up. Right. That'll ruin a career. Like people can forgive a crime, but not the not the cover up because it's so methodical and malicious. So you look at it from a church perspective, and you're like, you're supposed to be better. I remind people that everyone who has been baptized, in, uh, validly baptized, has received the divi- uh, a participation in the divine nature, as St. Peter says. You have become adopted in Christ Jesus. So the priestly dignity or the religious order dignity, you know, these things that enable— um, through the Sacrament of Holy Orders to have um, bless an individual soul and equip them for the sacramental ministry or the ecclesial ministry, doesn't ipso facto make them holy? Right. And I think, uh, le- whereas baptism does, because we literally have the indwelling of the Trinity through baptism, we have sanctifying grace, a habit of our very being. And so one of the things that I point out to people is, you know the and this sounds so awful and on on the surface it does but i want to say and it ties right into our episode there is just as much if not more abuse of minors of adults of using coercive power to sexually assault people in the world in any sphere so you could say public school coaches right or teachers here too right in texas i feel like every other week we're having another teacher being exposed for carrying on a multi-year relationship with a minor and all this stuff and so one of the things that we need to see is there is no organization as scrutinized as right. the catholic right. church because it's supposed to be better it's proposing an ethic of holiness right it's proposing all of this stuff so the church kind of brings this on herself when she covers up the sins of the very people telling you to live a holier life but at the same time, I would say, not only do you see this in the human condition, it's, we have a misunderstanding of what grace is. Grace is not magic. Just because I have grace within me doesn't, you know, it's like um, Sherry Waddell says that grace is grace and not magic. She quotes, uh, I think it was Jimmy Aiken, um, in applying it to like unevangelized kids, kids who don't even, teenagers who don't even believe in God but they go through the sacrament of confirmation. Right. And when parents are asked, why are they receiving this? They don't even believe in God. They'll say, right. well, you know, the grace of the sacrament will help them. And it's like, well, it's, I, I mean, it can, but it's not magic. It doesn't function in the presence of unbelief. So too the priesthood, right? Holy orders. It's not magic. It's not a car wash. And so I think often um, it is so easy to blame. I use it personally the pre-sex abuse scandal and the, and the cover up with the bishops. I use this as a check on myself. And uh, like I said, with the town halls, I want all the scrutiny on this. I desire there to be tons of scrutiny because I think it is a purifying fire, right? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Yeah. So I, I want people to see the Catholic church institutionally taking the lead on these things, not just rear guard action to save face or whatever. So we do town halls and we invite our parishioners. And, you know, I, in tears, listen to this man who also was in tears say, I love my son. I think my son would be a holy and wonderful priest, but I will never let him enter seminary. And like the whole, we're all just crying together as this reality hits us. The, um, there is a theology of tears that I think matters here. And if we are doing too much defending and not enough weeping, right. I think we we personally are in a wrong place. I think it's very easy to get defensive. Well, what about public school? Well, okay. But this really happened from the church. And so uh, and the reason why I say it's going to get into our topic today, which is Christ and Culture, a great book by H. Richard Niebuhr, a Reformed Protestant theologian from the 1950s. He kind of, one of the things you see is how do we relate to the fall? Like, if we're overly optimistic, we'll turn a blind eye and be, oh, that's just people making stuff up. If we're overly pessimistic, we become suspicious and cynical about everything, which is what Spotlight and all these other things can cause us to do in this age. So um, nothing can help us quite like the grace of Jesus Christ and men and women committing to becoming virtuous. I mean, there's not another thing. That can happen, you know. Like and preventing this in the right. future can only be through individuals choosing to be virtuous,
0: right? And that's the way God always responds to crises with saints. Always that there there is not there is not in history programs and processes that have fixed big crises in the church. It's always been saints. It's always been saints. Yeah, every single time. That's the way He responds. And so uh, I think for those of you, even just not with evangelization, if you're just feeling. If you're feeling so, you know, raw about this and so helpless, uh, this is this is a time, like Gomer said, to double down on sainthood, to double down on holiness, and use it as a check of ourselves.
1: Yeah, but isn't isn't it funny though? Isn't it funny though that this scandal, which is horrific, has also revealed a lot of the subcultures within the clergy that I think very few of us actually knew about, and if we knew about it. We were like, "Oh, that's just people making stuff up," and now all of a sudden we're seeing secondary and tertiary fallouts that are happening. You know, everything from financial corruption to uh, you know adult unchastity and all of this stuff just working its way through. And it's it's interesting. It's interesting. It's 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 an in, it truly is an international crisis. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. At the same time, I have had people convert to Catholicism because of it. And their thoughts are, if this institution could be this broken and still bring me the sacraments, how could I ever hide from it? Or why would I ever want to be separated from it?
0: So so today's episode, we're talking about Christ and culture, the five ways in Christ and culture of Christ and culture. And, you know, uh, kind of the heart of this episode is the heart of the church, right? Because it's, it's awesome, right? I, I love this part of the church that... Uh, we, we baptize not just babies, but we baptize things, right. And we baptize cultures, right. We, we appropriate cultures often and, and Christianize them. And so it's kind of this balance that we're going to talk about today is like how to be in the world, but not of the world. How do we interact with the culture? How do we make sure that we are living Christian cultures through true, authentic Christian culture and engaging the culture at large, um, because we, we want to be effective witnesses. You know, we, we definitely don't want to be uh, the kind of person who puts all kinds of effort into evangelization but has no fruit because we just can't talk to the culture or because we're so deeply rooted in the culture of the world, we, we speak no credibility.
1: And this episode is going to involve uh, a little bit more philosophical ways of thinking, right? So when, sometimes when I talk about this stuff, people's eyes start to glaze over. <laughs> so, yeah. But but I think it's so important for self-understanding. It's so important to understand, like, if you're a parish, and I always speak from this, like, parish mindset. Dave tends to speak from more individual mindset. But when when you're a parish, you have to understand your parish's kind of fundamental attitudes and beliefs and Presumptions, if you're going to evangelize a wider culture, because you got to have that self understanding. You got to know who you are and where you're standing in relation to those who have no uh, connection with God in order to bring them into that. Because once you're self aware, then you can kind of treat these things. So, whenever I talk about Christ and culture, uh, to me, when I read this book, it was like revelatory scales falling from the eyes kind of thing. And so, a uh, little background there is a Reformed theologian, H. Richard Niebuhr. You might know his uh, brother, Reinhold Niebuhr, who's a he's
0: called like the theologian of America. um, Gomer, no one knows him. No one. Only you. You're the only person. (laughs) Just so you know.
1: Reinhold Niebuhr (laughs) was a very, very, very uh, influential public intellectual. But his brother, H. Richard Niebuhr, um, gave a series of addresses in Austin at the Reformed Seminary there and in in the 1950s, and it ended up becoming a book and became widely influential. It's undergone a series of revisions, and this book inspired another book, which I really, really love and value its insight, which is Avery Cardinal Dolas's book, Models of the Church. I love that book. You can't get to Models of the Church without Christ and Culture, and he admits as such in the last edition of Models of the Church. Some people don't like Models of the Church because he's too critical of the institutional church and a lot of conservatives heavily identify with the institutional church model but I, I i don't know i i think sometimes we get too defensive you know when it comes too close you know we play cards too close right. to the chess as it were. so he gives these um series of lectures and then they get published and then they get revised and revised and they become hugely influential in the protestant world especially at the seminary level And if you affect the textbooks, you affect the culture in a lot of ways, right? So you have all these preachers who are going out in Calvinist, Presbyterian, Reformed Church, Independent, Baptist, whatever, that have this reform bent, who are taking this kind of uh, understanding and analysis of the way the church relates to the culture around it, right? The world, the church and the world. And so let me just kind of introduce. Does that make sense? Let me just kind of introduce some of these basic concepts and walk you all through it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go
0: through the yeah, the basic concepts. And we'll and then we'll try and make each one
1: practical yeah, for everyone. Exactly. And if you feel, David, I'm I'm entrusting the ears of our audience. If you feel like I'm going <laughs> out into the weeds and like, we're gonna talk about scholarship. Right. I yeah. want you to call me back. But I will essentially look at it from this perspective. Okay. When you talk about Christ and culture, number 1 Christ, Jesus the God of the New Testament, the eternal son of God become man, born of the woman, right? We understand we understand who Christ is, right? Now when we mean by culture, right, is everything everything artificial, everything human touched. So a forest is not culture, but a garden is. So we're talking language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social right. organizations inherited artifacts, technological processes, and values. Like, all of the things that are distinctly human and how we, not only how we function, but what we do to the world around us. So a building represents culture. And we know this because we understand that there are different types of architecture, right? There's the brutalist form, and then, you know, there's the Baroque form, and I don't know why I'm just sticking with bees, but um, as human beings, we have culture. And the coolest thing is, when you look in the book of Genesis, right, God did not place Adam and Eve in the wilderness, did he? He placed them in the garden, right? So it's almost like this enculturated aspect right at the very moment of our creation. And then you have Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, Cain is then cursed, and he goes out and he builds a city. So like the first city is of the lineage of Cain, and you have people that forged uh, instruments of iron and bronze. You have musicians, you have artists, you have all this stuff, but you also have bigamy and violence and oppression and all these things. And it's funny how like Genesis kind of starts off with this negative view of the city as this literally the lineage of a murderer. But in the book of revelation, the culmination of all of salvation history is revealed as the holy city, a new Jerusalem prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, descending from heaven to earth, to a new, from the new heavens to the new earth. And so it's, so we have to understand this as it evolves and, and shapes. So H. Richard Niebuhr gives us this kind of conceptual framework. There I go, uh, of understanding the relationship. So there are essentially five ways. There's three main ways. And then the, the third one, which is the middle way kind of has a couple of ways. So may, Many of you that might be listening to this think the culture is lost, right? Right, right. Like, you ever hear people say, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket? It's it's funny that this idea of Christ and the world are 100% incompatible. So your view of Christ and its relationship to culture is one of total opposition. Niebuhr calls it Christ against culture. That what we're trying to do is the world is this evil thing, this evil system that is either godless or it's in opposition to God, and our job is to go out into the world and pull people out of the world into the church. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense.
0: Right, and you can understand the biblical. It's kind of like like the pre- the preppers in a sense, the like Amish Christianity in a sense, right? This like idea of like circling the wagons and letting, you know, us speak to that culture from a far distance.
1: One hundred percent. The Mennonite response is right fascinating because they're like listen we are going to build an entire society that rejects all of modernism modernism is what's wrong so we're going to reject it in mass and we're going to keep our culture locked into 1642 or whatever it was and we're not going to progress technologically more or less past this past this part so to be loyal to christ and his church means i have to reject culture and society Right. right, And there's like something
0: there's something noble about it. But I guess I always feel like, man, like we don't have time for that. We don't have the luxury for that. Right. You know, like we have to engage the culture or they're they're gone.
1: Right. You so know? you have people like monasteries in, in an, or elements within the monastic tradition. You could say this. Right. I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. So uh, yeah. there is this you know, and there's plenty in the New Testament that that condemns what we call the world. And so you can have this understanding that for me to advance in holiness, I have to run from the, I have to run from capitalism. I have to run from political power. I have to run, you know, so you have the Mennonites, which would be ultra conservative, right? And then you would have something called like the new monastic movement, which is these, uh, these group of evangelical Christians and Catholics, and they live in impoverished areas to be salt and light. And they constantly, when they talk about the world, they only use one word: empire. Oh gosh! And and right, and they view it as entirely lost. Right. And they view every uh, every aspect of the church to try to influence culture, whether it's getting involved in law and politics or whatever, as inherently self corrupting. The church should have nothing to do with empire. Right. Right. And so that's their view. That's their view. So Shane Claiborne is living radical holiness and separation and all this stuff. Um, But the problem with this view is it denies kind of how enculturated we all are. Like no one is non-cultural. We all come in with our own culture and all these uh, things that we have. But if you think about it as, as a spectrum, on one side is this notion of Christ against culture, that to be loyal to Jesus or to the church, I have to run completely away from the world. So this involves, like, the world is fallen and irredeemable, and I don't need to go near it. On the other side, you have the Christ of culture, and this is where you see Jesus as the peak and the pinnacle of all of every culture's greatest desires and aspirations and hopes, right? Right. He's the great teacher, the great enlightener. Right. The great H. Richard Niebuhr says the one who directs all men in culture to the attainment of wisdom, moral perfection and peace. Right. And so you have this notion where you kind of blatantly baptize everything in culture. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, sure. it does. I'm yeah. letting you interrupt me by saying, does that make sense? <laughs> of
0: course, it makes sense. I think for this issue, like the second one that we're talking about, you know, throughout all these, what we're going to try and bring about is a balance. Like, what balance do we strike here? Because that's kind of the whole key to all of this,
1: right? Yeah. And see, this is the beautiful thing about what he's doing. The author of this book and, and the the sermons, um, he's trying to give us what we call typology, where he sets up these broad right, generalizations. Right. So you can understand your relationship and how you react and understand other people's relationship to the world. So these are generalizations. So they're not flawless. And you might borrow from some of these different mindsets and kind of have an amalgam of all five or whatever. But the idea is when you look at this, what it fundamentally, do you see the world as um, the arena of God's salvation, a.k.a. John 3 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Right? Or do you see it as this evil system opposed to God, i.e. be in the world but not of the world and be opposed to all kinds of worldliness, right? Or do you view the world as just the natural world, right? It's just that humanity and animals and plants and just a sum total of stuff, the universe, right? So how we view these things and the, the meaning that we give them affects the way we evangelize. Because if you have this second view on the opposite end of the spectrum, so the first view is evangelization is going out and rescuing people from the culture, right? Right. This view is going out and looking at what is going on in the culture and kind of partnering with it like you see these cultural trends, especially if you're on the left, this is very popular. The social gospel movement, right? Um, liberation theology is kind of in this mindset. Cause it's like, yeah, the Marxist idea of liberating people from political oppression, right? That's God's work, right? Because Jesus is talking about setting captives free, right? Bringing, you know, loving the poor, this radical um, inversion of the world's ideas, right? Like, well, the world wants, you know, rich and successful people. But right now we're seeing these different movements, right. godless, heathen movements. Maybe the mission of God is behind it all. And so this is where we um, we have to understand our relationship to culture. Because if we believe this model of culture wholeheartedly, like a large swath of liberal Protestantism does, the ancient Gnostics did, probably Peter Abelard did, according to uh, Niebuhr, that what we want to do is we... We ignore the tension that exists between the church and the world, right? Right. We ignore that and we just try overly to baptize. And we don't realize that it's not that the church is seeking signs of God in the world and partnering with it. It's actually that we're becoming worldly. So that's the danger. So the one thing is, you know, on one side, we're ignoring what God is doing in the world. And on the other side, we're ignoring what the world is doing to the
0: church. Of course. And, you know, I think like anytime we have social action without the cross... You're you're getting into some scary territory here. Every time we, we try and say that that's what Christ was trying to do, the social gospel movement, that kind of thing yeah. is a social or political movement. We are in big trouble there. Right. Yeah. We have to be very careful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, you can see this in the Catholic Church in like Brazil, for instance. There's this famous um in the nineteen nineties, Dr. Scott Hahn would talk about this. Uh f- and the reason why I know it is because I listened to Dr. Scott Hahn's lectures when I was a teenager in the nineties. Um, but he would talk about how in Brazil uh, Time magazine said the po- the Catholic church is opting for the poor, but the poor are not opting for the Catholic church. Right. And one of the reasons why is though we were feeding their bellies, we weren't evangelizing. Of course. Right. And so on any given Sunday in the 90s, the most populous Catholic nation on the face of the earth had more Protestants at a Sunday service than Catholics at mass, even though they were outnumbered like 10,000 to one or uh, 100,000 to one. Right. It's crazy. Right. But but this is the deal. Man does not live on bread alone. Right. And so if, and Pope Francis even talks about this very clearly, if you don't propose the gospel, you're no different than an NGO. Of course. And
0: and the NGO is probably going to do a better because they they have more funding. Right. They will. And I think, you know, this is one of the ways you might see this played out. uh, People who are listening is this is pretty common in youth ministry in America before life team came around and kind of revolutionized youth ministry. Most youth ministries were just service organizations. Oh, and so like absolutely. I know, like, like in Pittsburgh. Socials and service projects. Right, exactly. So like in Pittsburgh, uh, if you ask somebody like, well, what do you think youth ministry should be? Uh, very often their answer is, oh, they should be helping the elderly people at their homes and they should be doing social projects or you know service projects at their parish and they should be doing this and that and, and all good things. But I always say, I, I go back to this phrase all the time, and people even make fun of me for it because I say it so much, how dare you ask somebody for something before asking for their heart? And I think that this is a universal principle. Why, why would a priest think that he could ask for our money before he asked for our hearts? Why would we ask a teen to give their time and service before asking for their hearts? And I think this is, you have to be very careful here. This is a very difficult uh, thing to navigate because many of us uh, equate social action with uh, with conversion.
1: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there is a huge danger there. So think of it this line, right? You have on one side opposition to culture. That's Christ against culture. And you look at it, the other side is this agreement between Christ and culture. But most of you, when when you start to hear this, you begin to say, well, I'm not all in favor of the world, right? I do realize the world has fallen, so I'm not at one extreme, but at the same time, you know, I do see God moving in the world, but at the same time, I I don't agree with everything going on in the world. So you, you kind of find yourself in the middle, and so what H Richard Niebuhr does is he says, in the middle, you can kind of see three distinct things going on. So you got opposition to culture or agreement with culture as the, as the kind of like the bookends, and in the middle, you have what he would say, one's a synthetic type. It sees christ as the fulfillment of culture right that that all the good that's in culture pagan culture all this stuff that christ ultimately fulfills it but it's not without its problems and he would say actually saint thomas aquinas is kind of the the figure par excellence of this where he took the pagan philosophy of plato and aristotle especially aristotle and united it with the theology of the fathers especially augustine and created this new thing that we call Thomism, right uh, Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria—they talk about this in their theology because you gotta see it as um, see it through the lens of where they'll say there, there are seeds of glory scattered throughout the the human race, and now Christ is coming. Right, seeds of the gospel, and Christ is coming, and once the Christian religion is preached, it's like yes, this is the realization of all the best within Buddhism and the best within Greek mythology and Roman mythology
0: and all this right. stuff. Right. And okay, so here's why I think this is so powerful. Okay, this is why I think this is so powerful. We're not suggesting that you do this by preaching the gospel explicitly, although we want you to do that alone. What we're suggesting is that Christians infiltrate the, the centers of culture and do it in a Catholic Christian way, meaning this, we should be producing great art we should be producing great music we should be producing all the great marks of society great architecture these things that speak to truth beauty and goodness and slowly winning over and transforming that culture what we're what we're saying is that christ can conquer this culture by us being the best catholic christians we can and engaging in those good parts of the culture in art in the sciences in in architecture in whatever whatever's there by engaging them and doing them in in a very catholic christian way.
1: Yeah, and you think about this just historically, right? Catholics ended gladiator combat, right? Right? We we ended that. We ended the exposure of infants and the protection of parents who murder their own children. We ended all that because one, the gospel that we received as individuals and converted affected the way we love and treat our neighbor and the moment it does it when it affects our values beliefs and presumptions about say oh i don't know the fact that every child is made in the image and likeness of god the fact that every slave should be received according as a brother according to the flesh as saint paul says to the slave owner of uh uh philemon and onesimus in this great story of a slave finding christian slave running away from his owner and the owner is a Christian. And it's like, how do we deal with this? And St. Paul's like, you treat him as a brother. According to the flesh, right? There are seeds of the undoing of the evils of even the institution of slavery. So we have all this stuff, but as Catholics, we also have to realize that shifts in cultural views can often shed a light on blind spots in our theology. So you have the marginalization of women and minorities in various countries and then you see the Democrat, the march of democratic liberalism throughout our culture that a lot of people, especially those oppressed by totalitarian regimes and communism, uh, communist countries and whatnot, um, that it's not just the, the majority who were disaffected when the totalitarian dictator took over, but all sorts of groups wanted to participate, which led theologically. Pope John Paul II, reflecting on this in his document on the role of the laity in the Church, he he sees this notion of participation, especially of women, right, uh, as being a great blessing and a work of God. Well, that wasn't the Church going out being like, "Hey, hey, women, you deserve the right to vote," right? That wasn't happening. But but that could never have happened, right, were not the doctrines of redemption and the Imago Dei, the image of God already there in the culture right how do i have worth because of what i produce no because of what you are image and likeness of god
0: so let's let's get some brass tacks like just practical uh takeaways from some of this i, oh, I think yeah. one of the some points to to remember is this the overall general arching theme here is we have to we have to present some difference from the culture at large, the culture of the world. There has to be something different yeah. about our life. Right. So uh I I know I, and I'm gonna, you know, kind of pick on some some someone, maybe I'll you know, offend some people, but like when I see some of the pastors and speakers who are dressed like an Abercrombie model, it it's hard for me. I have a difficult time with that. I, I have a difficult time with that. I have a very hard time to think, oh like, Oh my gosh. I understand their mindset, I really truly do that they're trying to like engage a culture that, you know, is different. And maybe I'm just totally out of style, which is obvious, but, uh, (laughs) but I, I don't like that. On the other hand, we can't be so separated from the culture that we cannot speak to them at all. We cannot speak to them in any way whatsoever. This is, you know, the classic, uh, in every movie, every show, you know, the generational gap, you know, where the kids like, you know, the dad saying, well, in my day, I did this and the kids rolling his eyes, uh, we have to make sure that we still can engage the culture. And so I think walking that delicate line for an evangelist is so important. Uh, and and particularly your, your desire to create Christian culture is important because remember, when you're evangelizing someone out of the world, you have to evangelize them into something.
1: Yeah. And the reason why I we need to talk about this is exactly what you said. Sometimes... We go to bring the gospel to the world, and we don't realize that the whole time the world is colonizing us. Culture matters. The culture of your parish matters. If everyone at your parish views the world as going to hell in a handbasket, the incentive of that culture to go out and convert people is often nullified. Well, if they don't belong, then they're one of them. Right. right. Or— Or certain people might say, I have to rescue them. And you often find people that have that mentality, have that idea about their family members. I got to go save them from the culture around them, right? So, but there becomes this point where you make, you consign yourself to irrelevance. So the basically we're saying is, institutionally, we have to exercise massive amounts of caution here. That when we go to evangelize the world, we might not be colonized by the world or so adopt worldly uh, signs and symbols and language and beliefs and values that we offer nothing distinct from the world, like youth group, that was just a social and a service project. Well, guess what? That's what you do at a public school, right? You know, like, so there are there, what is the distinctively Christ element in what we do? Right. So that's constantly calling people back to that.
0: Right. I, I think, you know, my wife and I lived for about a year and a half in Burlington, Vermont, which is, it's its own culture. I mean, it is like the hippie capital of the United States, right? It's uh, just everybody's moved there to like find themselves and for organic farming. And and, and it's, it's like awesome. I, I love extreme people like that. And so it was a constant battle of trying to uh, help people to understand that they don't have to give up their culture, the, at least all of their culture, to be a Christian, and to say that, you know, often a lot of what they affirm in their culture is noble, and that Christianity would embrace that kind of thing. Uh, it, it, it becomes a very, uh, a real art to be able to nuance these, but remember, uh, this is going to have practical implications for your daily evangelization. It really, truly will, and it's going to be one of those things that makes you a really great evangelist if you think about these things absolutely
1: so we're gonna take a quick break so you can take a nap everyone out there and kind of process all this stuff but also we want to hear a good word from our sponsor at essential friends All right, everyone, we're back. We are back. And now it's time for our very practical take fives. Just a reminder, you can shoot us an email at eksb at ascensionpress.com. Stands for "Every knee shall bow. Me and Dave would love to hear from you and answer your
0: question on our show. So, Dave, what do we got for our take fives today? All right, so our five practical takeaways. uh, one One of the things I want people to do is I wanted them to take some time to pray And to kind of do an examination of conscience about the culture. Uh, And what I mean by that is this. I want you to take a look at your life really truly and take a look at the the culture of the world out there and see what parts of your life you might have really uh, brought in from the culture that you should not have, right? Uh, Media habits. uh, It it could be anything really. Uh, But take a look at some of those things in your life that, you know, might – have been too influenced by the culture of the world. Uh, when I remember probably, uh, probably like six or seven years ago, saying to my wife, Amber, you know what, you know, is there anything about me that you feel like, you know, is kind of scandalous or this would be not be fitting of a saint just asking her this. And she said, well, I, you know, I was really surprised about the music uh, on your, on your eye. I guess it was a iPod at the time. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, just thinking about like my workout mix had like just, terrible rap music on it you know and of course that would be scandalous for a christian to listen to some of these songs it was just terrible uh so just kind of do a little examination of conscience yeah
1: absolutely um something else i'm going to tell you to do is to read jeremiah 29 the whole chapter you might know this chapter from jeremiah 29 13 for i know the plans i have for you says the lord plans for your welfare not for your woe for a future full of hope a lot of people will have that a lot of evangelicals have that like on a plaque somewhere in their house Um, It's a great verse, but it's within this larger story of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews from Jerusalem in Babylon, and they refused to enter the city, a.k.a. culture. They refused to enter the city, and they had all these prophets who were like, no, 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 let's stay in these camps outside the city along the river, and let's not go in because the Lord's going to rescue us any day now, and Jeremiah was told by God to write a letter to the leaders and say, they are false prophets, they are condemned, move into that city because you're going to be here a long time. But in it, he says, seek the prosperity of the city, right? And that'll be your own prosperity, right? So this notion of I'm to be a good neighbor to the people, even if they are in opposition to me in the gospel, I still can be for them and their own prosperity. So he says within that context, right? Have your children marry, you get married, all that stuff, build houses, build gardens. And within that, he says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for your woe, right? So this notion that God is gonna prosper us this is not health and wealth gospel. What I'm saying is that our lives are connected to the lives of our neighbors and acknowledging that through the beautiful reading of Jeremiah 29 can help kind of make sense a
0: little bit of this Christ and culture narrative. Great, awesome. Okay, this is the next thing we want you to do and this is really simple. Do some small pious act in public. Go out and Christianize the culture, right? Let them know that you are going to be salt and light, okay? And uh, what, what we're talking about is just making the sign of the cross out in public, uh, praying before your meals, uh, something, something to in some way show uh, to bring Jesus into the culture of the world at large. Easy, easy, easy.
1: Uh, okay. Um, I want to talk about community as I always do. And I've mentioned this before, but I want to make this a practice. What's your favorite restaurant? Go there often, get to know the people's names, become a regular. One of the best ways we can affect culture is by being good people in the culture. When I, um, there is a certain soup and sandwich place that will go unnamed, but my cousin is the general manager of one. And he says, you know, people, I have all these hip Christian pastors that are here at my restaurant using our Wi-Fi. They're, they're here for like four or five hours. They treat my wait staff like trash.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And he said, and when the Catholic priests come in, they overtip. And he says, I have people who are atheists yeah. who are like, man, I love those Catholic priests and it's so funny right so uh and my my cousin yeah and my cousin is the son of a preacher man right and he's an evangelical he's like one time i had to kick a pastor out i said wow. you non christian get out of my store <laughs> so so if you become a regular you can lead people to a relationship with christ because they're in a relationship with you become a regular
0: awesome okay finally uh this is going to be sounds strange but what we want you to do is engage the culture in a different way Okay, Uh, we said before, like (laughs) do some small pious act in the culture. What we're going to do is we want you to engage the culture spiritually. And I want you to find something in the culture, an artist, uh, an actor, a singer, whatever you want, you know, whatever it is in the culture. could be a business leader, could be a politician. And I want you to just do some intercessory prayer for that person that they become a Christian, that they follow the Lord. Uh, or if they are a Christian, that they would stay that way and that they would be more outspoken about their Christianity. I know this sounds strange, but my, my wife used to always talk about how she used to pray for Elvis, even though he had already died. She, she loved Elvis so much that so she would pray for him all the time. And, and, and this is like this is funny because I think about this all the time. I, I always think about like people that I love, like Bob Marley, I always wonder, like, am I going to get to see Bob Marley in heaven? Like, I hope so, so badly. You know, Uh, different, like, people in the culture that I want to meet so bad, you know? And uh, I used to love, like, Snoop Dogg. I used to always pray for Snoop Dogg's conversion when I was in (laughs) high school. And so this is just like a kind of a—I know, it's funny, but it's kind of a— I mean, it's silly, but at the same time, it's real, right? We know that prayer works, and so why not? Why wouldn't we do this? Uh, So pray for your favorite artists out there. Yeah, hey, if those prayers were
1: answered for John Wayne— on his deathbed they could be answered for any that's right oh that's right i just read that yeah (laughs) all right ladies and gentlemen i'm mike joined with dave this has been every knee shall bow thank you ascension press for helping us put this together every knee shall bow at ascensionpress.com or eksb at ascensionpress.com email us your thoughts your feedback especially any questions you want to hear on the show god bless y'all see you